Exodus 19. On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out from the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain, while Moses went up to God. The Lord called out to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings, and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice, and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel." And so Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. All the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud, that the people may hear when I speak with you and may also believe you forever. When Moses told the words of the people to the Lord, the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow, and let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. For on the third day the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in sight of all the people. And you shall set limits for the people all around, saying, Take care not to go up to the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall be stoned or shot, whether beast or man. He shall not live. When the trumpet sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. And so Moses went down from the mountain to the people and consecrated the people, and they washed their garments. And he said to the people, Be ready for the third day. Do not go near a woman. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast, so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down and warn the people, lest they break through to the Lord to look, and many of them perish. Also, let the priests who come come near to the Lord consecrate themselves, lest the Lord break out against them. And Moses said to the Lord, The people cannot come up to Mount Sinai, for you yourself warned us, saying, Set limits around the mountain and consecrate it. And the Lord said to him, Go down and come up, bringing Aaron with you. But do not let the priests and the people break out through to come up to the Lord, lest he break out against them. So Moses went down to the people and told them. Well, Father, we thank you for the reading of your word. Thank you that your word is sufficient and authoritative. And now, Lord, we ask that you will bless the preaching of your word. Help us to be attentive and receptive to what you would have us to hear this morning. Lord, our prayer is that Jesus will be made much of today through, through these words. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.
So the late pastor Charles Spurgeon once opened a sermon by by saying, no subject of contemplation will tend more to humble the mind than the thoughts of God. But while the subject humbles the mind, it also expands it. And his aim with these comments, with these words, and this particular sermon was to encourage his congregation to think about, study, and to seek to know the God of the Bible. He was attempting to get them to think seriously about God and what it means to be a follower of God. See, then, just as it is today, there are many who claim to believe in God, but yet don't think seriously about what it means to actually follow him. But if we are to faithfully follow God, to to faithfully follow the God of the Bible, it is imperative, one, that we know who he is. You cannot follow a God that you do not know, and you cannot follow him if you do not know how he has instructed us to follow him. And the Bible tells us both of these things. J.I. Packer, in his book, Knowing God, which you can find in the bookstall, says, we are cruel to ourselves if we try to live in this world without knowing about the God whose world it is and who runs it. The world becomes a strange, mad, painful place and life in it a disappointing and unpleasant business for those who do not know about God. Disregard the study of God and you sentence yourself to stumble and blunder through life blindfolded, as it were, with no sense of direction and no understanding of what surrounds you. This way you can waste your life and lose your soul. It's an incredibly powowerful quote. Incredibly powerful thing to be thinking about. And and how this applies to our study of Exodus, how this applies to, to what we just heard read, is that Exodus is a book about the God who has made himself known. So if we really want to know God and we want to know what it means to follow him, then it's imperative that we study not only this book, but all of the book, all 66 books that comprise the Bible. But we pick up today here in chapter 9, which is really one of the most important passages, one of the most important chapters in all, all of Scripture. The people of Israel have arrived at Mount Sinai, a place that they'll remain now for the next 11 months throughout the duration of our time in Exodus. They're going to stay here, no more moving around, and they're going to be here as God gives them the law. He's instructing them and saying, okay, this is how it, what it means to be a follower of me. This is what it looks like to live your life as a follower of the Lord. In chapter 19 is the preparation for the receiving of the law. Now, before we zoom in with our, kind of our, our specific points today, we want to zoom out for the, the, the larger picture. And the bigger picture that we have here is that we see two things about God. One, we see that God is there. God is present with his people. Appearing in a thick cloud, coming down the mountain in the sight of the people. Uh, thunder and lightning. People are, are trembling. The mountain wrapped in smoke as, as God descends in fire. All of this telling us that God is there and present with his people. The second thing that we see is that God is not silent. 
The Lord calling to Moses out of the mountain, speaking to Moses, telling Moses what he shall say to the people. The Lord speaking through the clouds so that the people are actually able to hear what God is saying. Over and over, the Lord telling Moses, this is what you are going to tell the people. All of this being combined collectively telling us that God is there with his people and he is not silent. God is there and he is not silent. But maybe you feel as though he is neither today. You feel as though he is neither present nor speaking. You think, I I just don't sense it, Jeremy. I don't. Well, if that is you today, my prayer is that today you will see that God is here. Not just there, he is here and he is not silent. I pray you will find great comfort from the God who has made himself known. Which brings us to the first of seven points today. One, God has made himself known. And let's not for a moment take that for granted. That God, the creator of all things, has made himself known known. And not just generally in a sense of like, oh, we we know that we're not here by an accident, but he has made himself known in a very specific and special, knowable sense. The late philosopher Francis Schaeffer wrote a book in 1972 called He Is There and He Is Not Silent. If you've never read the book, I would encourage you to do so. Obviously, you can tell that I was thinking about this book and the preparation of this sermon came quickly to mind. But in that book, he says, let us notice that no word is as meaningless as the word God, little g. Of itself, it means nothing. Like any other word, it is only a linguistic symbol, G-O-D, until content is put into it. This is especially so for the word God, because no other word has been used to convey such absolutely opposite meanings. The use of the word God proves nothing. You must put content into it. So that means when someone tells us that they believe in God or that we make the statement that we believe in God, the only thing they or we are affirming in that moment with that statement is that we are not an atheist. We're affirming that we do not believe that we are here by an accident. We're not truly saying anything other than that. Meaning we're among the 93% of the world's population who believes in some form of deity. Really, only 7% of the world's population actually believe, would consider themselves atheists. The rest of the world believes in some form or fashion of, of, of a deity. But what do Christians, we who claim to be followers of Christ, what do we as Christians mean when we say that we believe in God? There's got to be more to it than saying that we're not just here by an accident. Well, a Christian, when we say that we believe in God, is saying that we believe in the God who has made himself known. But then we gotta follow up with another question. How has God made himself known? And the answer is by his word. Turn with me to Exodus chapter three. This is Moses before the Exodus takes place. While he was still in Midian, still living with Jethro, his father-in-law and his family, and he, and he comes to Horeb the mountain of God, 
which is another name for Mount Sinai, meaning where the Israelites are now encamped at Mount Sinai, Moses has been there before. And what happened when Moses was there before? The burning bush. Look with me in verse two. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked and behold, the bush was burning and it was not consumed. This naturally catches Moses' attention. And look what happens at the end of verse four. As Moses goes up to the bush, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. God calling Moses here by name. And how does Moses respond? Here I am. Which means what? I mean, very basic, simple sense. What does this mean? Moses is talking with God. Moses is talking to the God of the Bible the God of all creation. How? How is that even possible? Because God has made himself known and he has made himself known through his word. And then God goes to warn Moses, hey, don't come any closer because what's Moses wanting to do in that moment? He's wanting to like come closer to the flame, come closer to the bush. And God's saying, hey, this far, but no further. He's warning him out of mercy, do not come any closer. Then what does God do? He reveals himself by name to Moses. He's distinguishing himself from all the other false gods that are out there, all the false gods that exist. He's saying, this is who I am and I am nothing like them. I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. And what's Moses' response to hearing the word of God? He falls on his face and he's afraid to even look at him. Point being here, God has made himself known to Moses through his word. Question going through your mind likely is, Jeremy, how does this in any way apply to me? How does this apply to us? I'm glad you asked. Turn with me now to Hebrews chapter one. Hebrews chapter one. And while you're turning there, how do you know anything about anyone? Let me think about it. How do you know anything about anyone at all, whether friend, family, spouse, stranger, by making it known, right? That you have, they have to, it has to be made known. I mean, how do we know anything? How does anybody know anything about you? You have to tell them these things. You have to make it known. Like how, does some, how do you know someone's name? Well, they have to, either they tell you their name directly or someone else tells you their name. It's kind of like back in college or high school or elementary school or whenever, any part of life, you're thinking, hey, I want to get to know that person. Do you know who that person? Oh, yeah, that person is so-and-so. Maybe you're scared to ask them yourself, but how did that person learn that person's name? Because someone told them. At some point in time, if somebody's going to know my name is Jeremy, unless my parents are the ones telling them, I have to be the one saying, hey, I'm Jeremy. It's nice to meet you. And then, then somebody else is able to say, oh, that's Jeremy, because I've revealed my name. The same is true with anything. But none of us have had the luxury of having God speak to us through a burning bush, have we? I think mean, all of us have probably, if we've ever studied the scripture, been like, man, that would have been really cool to be able to be there and to experience that. And I think we're actually in that, not realizing the severity of the situation when we think that way. But how does God make himself known to us since we're not having that type of experience? How? 
Not just generally, again, not in a 93% of the world population believes that we're not here by accident type of way, but in a specific sense. How do we know God? Hebrews chapter one, verse one. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. Moses, Elijah, the others. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. And who is his son? Jesus. Jesus, the son of God, the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, the one who all things are created through and for is Christ, the the perfect prophet, priest, and king who all the prophecies are, are pointing to, Jesus. But just like we don't have the luxury of having God speak to us through a burning bush, well, neither are we standing before Jesus on, on any mount or any place and, and having Jesus speak to us like he did the disciples. So how does God speak to us through Jesus? Through the word of God, through the Bible. Hebrews 4.12 telling us the word of God is living and active. And while the scriptures are, are read, the, the Holy Spirit still speaks. Not new words, but old words that still ring true today. Meaning God is not silent. Church, you ever feel that moment like you want to hear God speak? Like I just want to have God speak. He is. He is speaking to us through his word. When we had individuals just read the text just a few moments ago, yes, you were hearing their voices, but what they were saying was the authoritative and sufficient word of God. This is God's word to us. We want to know God. We must be a people of the word to study the word. We must be a people who are immersed ourselves in the Bible. But second point, God making himself known is an act of mercy It is not deserved. And this is huge. This is huge because God did not have to make himself known. We gotta really think about that. He did not have to do this. See, the very notion that God has made himself known through his word is evidence that he is a merciful and loving and gracious God. Why? Because he didn't have to do it. He never had to reveal himself to us. He never had to make himself known. Nothing would have changed about God or his character if he had not made himself known. But he did. He has. He's made himself known to us through his word. But then the question is why? Like why does he do this? Why does he make himself known to sinful people such as us? Number three. God makes himself known for our redemption. See, the point of God making himself known was always been, has always been to redeem, always. The words of the prophets and the apostles were never meant just to make us smart, not just to gather this information so we can pass Bible trivia and answer questions and impress our friends or whatever, The words of the prophets, the apostles, the words of the scriptures are meant to bring us to Christ, to point us to Christ, to redeem sinful people to a holy God. 
Look with me at Exodus chapter 19, verse 4, which is our text today, where the Lord is telling Moses to tell the people, you yourselves have, been, have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Such an awesome passage. And we started thinking about the context of where it's located. Just read it again. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians. Speaking to the Israelites, you've seen everything I've done with all the plagues and the deliverance and how I bore you on eagles' wings and I brought you to myself. The God who has made himself known has redeemed a people and brought them to himself. What's the Lord telling Moses to tell the people? He's telling him to remind them of who delivered them from Egypt. The God who has made himself known, made himself known to redeem. And when does this redemption take place? When does it take place? Before the law is ever given. Meaning their redemption is based completely upon the mercy and the grace of God. Nothing that they bring to the table, nothing which is true of everyone who is saved. All of us being at one time alienated and hostile in mind towards God, doing evil deeds, but in mercy, in mercy, he reconciled us to himself by his death in order to present us holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Church, this is why God has made himself known, to redeem sinful people unto himself, which is clearly for our good and for his glory. But let's face the reality. We know nothing of redemption without God speaking. We know nothing of his plan of salvation, if you will, without God speaking. Thus the imperative for people to be able to hear and to know the the gospel. Because how can it be made known? It has to be known through the word. And it goes back further. The only reason that we know about God's plan of redemption is because in his mercy and in his grace, he has made it known to us. But there's more. Number four, God expects his people to obey his words. And this is where people start getting uncomfortable. Let's just be honest. Talking about uh, grace, fine with that. Talk about mercy, yes, please. We want more mercy. We need more mercy. We want more grace. Hate talking about obedience. Ah, I don't want to talk about that. That, 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 that. That's Old Testament language. And yes, we're in the Old Testament. But the New Testament tells us you will know them by their fruits. You will know them by their works. Those works have to align with obedience, align with God's word. So, but let's be clear, the Bible is in no way implying that obedience is what makes us right before God. In no way implying that. Neither in the Old Testament nor the New Testament does obedience make us right before God. Just look at verse five, which comes after what? Verse four. Thus the reason the therefore is there. So if you're new with us or haven't been with us for a long period of time, you've heard me say at one point in time or another, for those who have been here, that always ask, if you see the therefore, ask what is the therefore therefore? So if we're gonna look at verse five, which has a therefore, it's pointing us back to verse four, all about redemption. God has redeemed a people. They've done nothing to deserve that. They've only, by faith, put blood over the door, the, the 
sacrificial lamb, who've walked through the divided waters of God's judgment, all by faith. God has done everything to redeem them. And now here we come with this undeserved redemption. We come to verse five and saying, now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. Look at those last six words. Those last six words, for all the earth is mine. These are the clearest declarations of monotheism in the entire Bible. Monotheism being the belief that there is only one God and there is no others. The Lord is saying, for all the earth is mine, every square inch of it, from, from sea to shining sea, if you will, every single bit of the earth is his, all of it. He's declaring his sovereignty over it all. No other little G God can say this. And as a sovereign one, he expects his words to be obeyed. Again, not as a means of, of earning our salvation, not a means of the Israelites earning their salvation. They've already been redeemed. But obedience coming in response to salvation. There's an expectation from God that his people will live in accordance to his word. Meaning we don't have the ability to make our own rules. Which goes flying in the face of the culture we now live in. We do not have the ability to say, hey, what's right for me is right for me and what's right for you is right for you. That's the culture we live in. Everybody wanted to make up their own rules and set their own standard for truth and all of these things. The Bible tells us, God tells us, the God who has made himself known tells us that there's a right way to live and there is a wrong way to live. And what's right and what's wrong is determined exclusively by God's word. Not by traditions, not by our preferences, but exclusively by the word of God. Now, starting next week, we're going to begin a journey through the Ten Commandments. We're going to walk through them one by one over a ten-week period of time. And we're going to be looking at fleshing out what they mean and how they apply to us today. So you're the one who comes in and says, I just want a lot of application of knowing how this applies and what this means. Brace yourself for the next 10 weeks because we're going to be looking and saying, this is the God who has made himself known and this is what he means when he means you shall follow me. But number five, God expects his word to be made known. Thus the reason for prophets and apostles and pastors and disciples and Christians <laughs> The people of God are to make known the word of God. See, God refers to his people as a treasured possession. Did you see that? God referring to his people as a treasured possession. You talk about application right here. Like if you are in Christ, you are God's treasured possession. <laughs> and he has a purpose for his treasured possession. And it's not that we just sit around and talk about how great it is to be God's treasured possession. Oh, let's just sip coffee and tea and talk about how great it is to be God's treasured possession. Ha! I'm not saying it's wrong to talk about and rejoice in the fact that we are God's treasured possession. But we have more to be done than just sit around and talk about the fact that we are God's treasured possession. Look at verse 6. 
the Lord telling Moses to tell the people, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Now, what in the world does that mean? A kingdom of priests. It means they're to represent God to the rest of the world, to be a light in the world and attempting to bring the rest of the world, the nations, to God. Through God's people, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Does that sound familiar to anybody? It should. If you're familiar with Genesis, you go all the way back to Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, God making his covenant with Abraham, and he's promising them three things there. He's one, he's saying, I'm going to make of you a people. <laughs> like Abraham, like Sarah, unable to have children, but of you, there's going to be a great people. And that people's going to cry out to you in praise at some point in time. And we're getting to that point, for real. That people is going to have a land. God's telling this is how you're going to live in that land. And you are going to be, quote unquote, a light into the nations. You're going to be a blessing to the nations. All the peoples of the earth are going to worship, are going to cry out, are going to praise him so everybody will know. And what's that mean? What's it mean? It means by, by keeping God's covenant, by, by keeping the law, they'll be setting themselves apart from the rest of the world. Light and dark. There's a difference. God's people are to be distinct from the world, not blending into the world. Same applies to us. Turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 2. Where Peter is speaking both to Jews and to Gentile believers. He's speaking to, to the church and explaining how, how we've inherited the responsibilities of, of Israel. So we're drawing our application here directly from the text. It's something we always want to do, drawing our application from God's word. So 1 Peter chapter 2, looking at verse 5, Peter is saying, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. That's us. Verse 9. You, again, we're talking about the church. This is we who are in Christ. We are, you, we are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Oh, church, do you see the connection between Israel and the church? They're to be a light and we're to be a light, distinct, set apart, making God's word known to all the peoples of the earth. We're to persevere in faithfulness so that those around us may see our good deeds and glorify the God, God in the day of visitation. We're to be the ones who let the whole world know that God is here and he is not silent. We're to be the communicators of this truth. And so how do the Israelites respond to these words? How do they, how do they respond when they hear all of this? Verse eight, all the people answered together and said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. Meaning the people agree. They're all in. They're all in, like, yes, Lord, we will 
obey, which is the declaration of every believer. Yes, Lord, we will obey. We will follow you. But what the law is going to reveal is that all of us fall woefully short of the glory of God. We fall woefully short in our obedience. We are unable to make ourselves holy by our works. Which brings us to number six. God makes himself known so we can meet with God. Which brings to the question, how can we meet with God if we are not holy? How can we meet with God if we still have sin in our life? How is this even possible? Well, let's look again at Exodus. God telling Moses he's coming down to meet with the people. Verse 11, and be ready for the third day for on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. But for that to happen, the people have to be prepared. They they can't come before God as they are. Verse 12, and you shall set limits for all the people all around. Gotta set limits, gotta basically set a fence. You can come this far, but no farther. Meaning they can come this close, but no closer. You cannot touch the mountain. You do, you die. We'll see the same thing with the Ark of the Covenant. We'll see the same thing with the, the tabernacle. But in preparation, the people wash. They consecrate themselves. Now, what does that word consecrate mean? Consecrate means they're, they're attempting to make themselves holy. So they're striving in every ounce of purity for every ounce of purity that they can get before coming before God. The problem is they cannot make themselves holy. Neither can we. We can never make ourselves holy enough to come before God. We've all tried. Whether we admit it or not, we've all tried. Since the moment sin entered the world, people have been trying to purify themselves before God. What did Adam and Eve do when they realized their sin? They went and grabbed some fig leaves and they began to sew them together. I was like, I wonder what that looked like. We're trying not to let my mind go too far down that equation or down that rabbit hole. But like, like sewing, what are they sewing with? And like all of the, like they're trying to cover themselves, their, their sin before God. And they, they can't, they can't. You may have tried or are currently trying to cover your sin through any measure of good works, hoping and believing that if you just do enough good, it's gonna outweigh the bad. When we feel dirty, when we feel unclean, maybe it's because of a sin in our life, maybe it's because of something that's happened to us, or maybe it's because of uh, uh, just being out and just feeling, ugh, what do we do? Wash, clean. We attempt in so many different ways to to make ourselves feel clean. Of the 93% of the world who who believe in some form of of deity, every religion has some form of self-purification, of washing, cleansing, ritual after ritual. But the Bible tells us we can never make ourselves pure, clean before God. We are stained with sin, every single one of us. Even our righteous deeds, our most righteous deeds, the Bible compares to a polluted garment, to filthy rags. Yet God wants to meet with us. He wants to meet with us. We have to then ask the question again, how? 
How is it possible for him to meet with us if we are so filthy? How are the Israelites able to come before God who has descended on the mountain in fire and not be consumed by the fire? How are we not consumed by the fire of God's judgment? The answer, number seven, God's people can't meet with God without a mediator. Now, what's a mediator? A mediator is a two-way messenger. It's a go-between. In this case, a messenger between God and man. Moses being the one who's been communicating with God or to, to God's people on behalf of God and interceding before God on behalf of his people. But that's not all he's doing. Look at verse 14. So Moses went down from the mountain to the people and consecrated the people. So Moses isn't just mediating communication here, nor is he just doing prayerful intercession. Those are vitally important, but he's also consecrating the people before God. Again, he's making the people holy before God so they can come to him at the mountain. But the question again is how? How has how is Moses, a sinful man himself, able to make the people holy before God? Well, the text doesn't give us specifics, but we know it wasn't enough for, for them to wash their clothes. We know they could never make themselves holy no matter how much they, they, they tried, which is why they needed God to make them holy before they could become, come before him at the mountain, which is what he did through Moses. But again, the question is how? Well, most likely through some kind of sacrifice since that's what's always been required for holiness going all the way back to Adam and Eve in the garden. So Adam and Eve, they tried to to cover themselves with figs, try to, to purify themselves. And God says, you can't. But what did God do? He made garments for them from animals. He gave them animal skins to cover themselves. The very first sacrifices, these animals dying to atone for, to pay for the price of Adam and Eve's sins, a, a substitutionary payment. So by all indications, Moses is offering some form of sacrifice to atone for the sins of the people. Just like we saw just a couple weeks ago that Jethro, his father-in-law, did with, with the burnt offering and the sacrifices that he made. And all of this is in preparation to receive the covenant between God and man, to receive the law. You cannot come to the mountain of God without first being made holy. Get the picture. Mountain of God descended with fire. You cannot come to the mountain unless you are holy. So we ask the question again, Jeremy, how does this apply to us? Again, I'm glad you asked. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12. This is where the author of Hebrews is addressing the new covenant, which is the new the covenant that we all are now under. This covenant. And he's telling Christians how they are to respond to this covenant, how they're to think about this covenant. So picking up in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 18. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, 
it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. So here he's referring back to the mountain. He's referring back to Mount Sinai. Moses trembling in fear here. But then says in verse 22, but you have come to Mount Zion. It's a different mountain. And to the city of the living God the heavenly Jerusalem and to innumerable angels in festival gathering and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven and to God, the judge of all and to the spirits, the righteous made perfect. Pause right there. We ended verse 21 with Moses trembling in fear at what was taking place at Mount Sinai. The trembling and fear quote coming from what happens after the golden calf and the the sin that is taking place. He's, He's petrified of what is happening here. But now the author is speaking to the church coming to Mount Zion, the heavenly Jerusalem. And notice what's not mentioned here. There's no mention of trembling. There's no mention of fear from the church, none. Even though there is plenty to fear, there is plenty to tremble at. I remember Isaiah's reaction in Isaiah chapter six, the vision of the Lord, the throne room of God. He sees the Lord high and lifted up. He sees these six winged creatures flying around the throne room of God, crying out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord. And what's Isaiah's response? Woe is me, for I am lost. I'm a man of unclean lips, dwelling in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, Yahweh. I've seen the Lord of hosts. He falls down, cannot look. Also remember, every time someone sees an angel in the Bible, how do they respond? They tremble, they fear. Angels having to tell them, do not be afraid. But again, notice the author mentions nothing of trembling and nothing of fear here. Why? Why is the church not fearing here at Mount Mount Zion, this holy Jerusalem, heavenly Jerusalem? Why? Verse 24, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See, the difference between Mount Sinai and Mount Zion is that we who have taken shelter by faith under the blood of Christ are permanently united with Christ as our mediator. Our mediator isn't a sinful man in need of a savior like Moses. Our savior is God in the flesh. God with us. And by his blood, we are able to come boldly, not timidly, not with a barrier in place. We are able to come boldly before the living God and not be consumed by the fire. Not trembling. We're able to come before him in communion and in worship and in joy and celebration. How? by the blood of Christ. That's how. 
It's the only way we're able to come. But we only come before the living God boldly if we heed his call to repent and believe. Thus, verse 25, see that you do not refuse him who is speaking. It's a very strong warning. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. Who is speaking? Jesus is speaking. He is speaking to us through his word. Very beginning of his gospel, uh, of the gospel of Mark, telling us the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. And the question today is, have you? Have you trusted in Christ as your mediator? Have you, are you, continuing to trust as Christ as your only hope in life and in death? If so, church, rest assured, you will not be consumed by the fire of God's judgment. You will gather with the church and worship. You will gather around the marriage supper of the the Lamb and you will celebrate from now and forever with Christ. But if you haven't, the warning is clear. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. You will not escape God's judgment no matter how hard you try for he is a consuming fire. Heed his words today and believe. Believe in Christ and you will be saved. Call upon the name of the Lord today and you will be saved. Church, our God is here and he is not silent. He has made himself known through his word. We wanna know God, we go to his word. This itself is a great act of mercy. And he's made us himself known for our redemption. And he expects those who are redeemed, he expects us to obey his word. And he expects us to make his word known to the world. For he desires to meet with his people. But the only way that we, his people, can meet with him, our God, is through Christ, our mediator. To him we give all glory and honor and power and praise. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for making yourself known. And not only have you made yourself known, you have spoken. (laughs) You have not left us to figure this world out on our own. In love and in mercy and grace, you have redeemed sinners to yourself. And you have told us how we are to live as your followers. Forgive us, Lord, when we don't obey your word. Forgive us for for thinking our ways are better than your ways. But again, we thank you for your mercy. Not only in making yourself known, but in redeeming us from your consuming fire. Thank you, O Lord, that you are a faithful, faithful God. It's in Jesus' name we pray. That's where we stand as a church and we sing of the great faithfulness of our God.